Hey there, have you heard about the Rosenman Innovator Program? If you're looking to scale up your health tech idea, this program is for you. I'm Carly Grant from the UCSF Rosenman Institute, and I have the pleasure of connecting entrepreneurs like you with people who can help you grow your business faster. The Rosenman Innovators Program provides hands-on mentorship, guidance, and a whole suite of benefits that help you navigate the path to commercialization. So what are you waiting for? Applications are open now. Don't miss your chance to be a part of the Rosenman Innovator Program. Join us today to successfully fundraise, gain visibility, and grow your network. To find out more, go to rosenmaninstitute.org slash programs slash Rosenman innovators. And so I think the biggest transition for me has been um, you know, I used to worry about what we were losing every month and what did that mean and how are we going to, you know, keep lights on. And now it's the ability to bring, to have the broader vision of how to tie all the different pieces together to truly do this at scale. So it's a very different experience, but um, I have no question that it was the right moment to say, okay, we've gotten this where it needs to be. And now let's see if we can leverage it as a part of something bigger. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What do you get when you mix a doctor's caring heart and a businessman's entrepreneurial mind? Well, you would get Brad Hurst, a medical oncologist who is now the CEO of Signal Health, a clinical trials technology solution. From serving as senior medical director at Flatiron Health to serving on faculty at Duke University, Brad has really done it all. Brad has put together his clinical background and research knowledge into a new business ecosystem to help improve clinical trials execution. Today, I'm so excited to speak with Brad about his journey to finding Signal Health and his reflections on these exciting ventures from oncologists to entrepreneurships in the health tech space. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to take part. Yeah, so I'm uh, uh, I'm very curious about your journey, and now you're part of the Verily, but I thought it would be interesting for all our listeners to hear a little bit about your background. Um, how do you end up choosing to be in a healthcare space, and uh, what are the challenges that you face to get to where you are today? I appreciate that. I think like many of your guests, I, I've had sort of a winding road to where I am today. Uh, growing up, I always knew I wanted to be a, kid, a doctor. Um, that was always the goal and uh, really something from the time I was in high school on that, that I thought I was going to be. So it's interesting that I'm no longer, I don't know if you're still a doctor, if you're not practicing, you know, I guess it depends on who you talk to. Um, but I graduated uh, the University of Pennsylvania expecting to become a doctor, go to med school. Actually, I had an interesting interlude where for a little while there, I started to question and actually worked in the wilderness therapy program for kids, adjudicated kids, adjudicated youth, kids in the prison system out in Utah um, and took a year and learned a lot about leadership and what it means, but ultimately went back on the path and decided to go to med school and become a doctor. 
And then I had uh, the good fortune of going onto the faculty as a part of the Duke Clinical Research Institute or the DCRI, which is such a unique, a unique place in the world where there are a lot of thought leaders as clinicians, but doing a lot in the clinical research, health tech, and other spaces, and got very deeply engaged with Amy Abernathy and Kevin Schulman and a couple of other folks uh, on the faculty there. They're really looking at how to use data and technology and infrastructure uh, to change the way medicine is practiced. And then from there, it was just a circuitous route. I went from there to ultimately um, uh, working within uh, Flatiron Health when Amy went there and followed her and, and spent a couple of years at Flatiron Health understanding that the use of data in oncology and, and left Duke and went into private practice. And then uh, a couple of years later, I co-founded a company called SignalPath that I'm sure we'll talk about a bit and jumped to be the CEO there. And then that was acquired by Verily. And next thing I know, I've stopped practicing because life got so busy. And now I'm sort of a full-time tech entrepreneur. And I, it's been a, a fascinating path. I've learned an incredible amount. And I love what I do. I miss practicing medicine, but I love what I do every day. Yeah, well, I guess you're in a way, it's uh, as long as you still can prescribe some prescri uh, drugs, then I think you're still a doctor, isn't it? How that works? I guess, but nobody wants me. I'm an oncologist, so nobody wants me prescribing chemo. So uh, I, don't, I don't do it too often anymore. So um, as I always admire people who kind of knew from the beginning that they want to become a doctor. So sometimes it feels like some it's an easier path, like, you know, you know where you want to go. Uh, but like, help me understand like your transitions, like, you know, from, you know, being a doctor and working in in a company is a completely different setting. And it, how is that different? And how is your uh, experience being a doctor's? inform a lot of things that you do. Yeah, it was never intentional. You know, I have people come up all the time that are clinicians, doctors, nurses, NPs, PAs, whatever, whatever they may be doing, and saying, hey, I'm really excited about the health tech space, or, or I'm burnout as a clinician, you know, burnout is so high these days, and it's become so complex to be a doctor in so many different ways, or a clinician more broadly. Um, and, and I always warn them that it's sort of a dangerous path, right? It's a slippery slope. You, uh, you, you take a call, you end up being a part of some meetings, you, you find a mentor in a great project and you start working in the space and you get deeper and deeper into it. So it was never an intention. It's never that I went out and said, you know, I'm burnt out as a clinician and I want to do it. What happened was I saw the impact uh, that folks were having as, as entrepreneurs and, and the way that you could scale product and, and really change the way medicine is practiced. And it was married to some of the complexities of what does it mean to practice every day to day as an oncologist with genomics and with just so many different things coming at you in so many different directions, um, especially in the research space, which is where I've ultimately uh, spent most of the last decade. Uh, it, it was just this unmet need. And so I got excited to start being a part of projects. And the next thing I knew, there were some great company ideas. And I said, hey, I'll help you think about that. And I'll help raise money for it. And I'll go on the board. And then next thing I knew, uh, you know, my co-founder had really made great progress. But then it was, hey, we need to start selling this to health systems. And there needs to be a clinician at the table. So it was just this very, I wouldn't say random, but unexpected path. And I loved what I was doing and went further and further. But the problem with that, which uh, is one that I always talk to clinicians about is at some point they'll say, wow, now, you know, this is fantastic and you're in a leadership role here and you can't keep practicing because, you know, you can't be in a, in a meeting with the CEO of a health system and say that my oncology patient really needs me and step out for an hour. And so uh -huh. 
you know, I got busier and busier. And then at some point it became very clear that I had to make a decision. Either I could be a clinician or I needed to be, you know, a leader in a health tech organization. And at that time we'd raised a lot of money and had, you know, a couple hundred people and uh, it was no longer really a choice. And so I missed practicing desperately, but it was never an intention. It was never a choice. It just sort of happened naturally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So many of the things that you do are involving a lot of the informatics and the data. And um, why is the interest there? And what's, you know, can share with us um, the importance of informatics and data in our healthcare system and understanding the data and synthesizing it the right way? Yeah, my, my path has actually been twofold. One half of it is data and the other half is operations. And it really is bringing the two together that I think is the most exciting part of sort of where we're going. My first path was really uh, at Flatiron and some of the work we did at Duke, which is uh, uh, something that's not novel, not new to anybody, that there's an incredible amount of data being generated about individuals, whether you know patients or, or, or people more broadly. Um, and a need in healthcare to figure out how do you use that data for good? How do you understand the course of an individual? How do we understand what works and what doesn't and drive precision medicine? Because to run a trial in a traditional sense is prohibitively expensive, takes uh, large teams, lots of time, lots of money. Um, and that can't be the solution for everything. And so one of the things, and this is really what Flatiron was based around, is how do you use an electronic health record at the time to really aggregate the data in a way that you can rely on that data and it is understandable by regulators like the FDA, uh, payers, clinicians, patients, et cetera. Um, and so that was really the focus of that effort is to use the data that's available to make it into evidence. And it was a fascinating time. And, you know, there are lots of sort of nuances there that are super interesting of how do you how do you generate data sets and understand data sets, even things that should be obvious, like if an, when did an individual pass away of their cancer is much, much harder than you would think to answer. Um, and so it was really around those kinds of things. But in parallel, uh, I had also founded SignalPath, which is much more on the operational infrastructure for how trials are run. So in that instance, again, you wouldn't expect these things to be too true unless you work in clinical medicine, unless you're in a practice where, um, you know, for to run a clinical trial, you get a PDF that tells you what you need to do and, you know, you sign your contract and then there's spreadsheets and sticky notes and calendars that you're printing out for patients and, and there's really no connecting technology around that piece of it. And so just like we worked in the data space at Flatiron at SignalPath, it was how do you actually put together, how do you digitize a trial? How do you have a digital representation of all the things that people need to do? And then allow that platform to become the workflow for coordinators at the point of care with the clinician and the patient and the finance team and the regulatory team and the management team. And so that was a really fascinating experience. It was very different. It was really um, around, around workflow infrastructure. Um, and then as these things have come together, now we're at a point where you can start actually making it decrease the fall. How do you bring together the workflows of the health system with the data that exists and actually start to say, how do you change the way trials are done? And, and that's sort of what we're doing at Verily. So it's, uh, it's, I've learned a lot in a lot of different directions, and, and it's an interesting moment to try to bring it all together. Yeah, no, it's like um, before I go deep, uh, uh, asking you a lot about what you do at Signal, I mean, about Signal Path. What you mentioned earlier, you're saying that, you know, even saying when a patient died from cancer is hard to to say. Like, tell me more about that. Like, it sounds so simple, but why is it hard? And, and it all comes down to in a clinical trial, when you're doing, when you're looking at a new drug for lung cancer, 
um, you have a whole team that's job is to figure out how to get all the different data elements, all the different things that occur, of which one, sadly, is, is has that patient passed away. So they're calling the patient, they're doing different things. Um, as an oncologist, when you're caring for somebody, there's no reason to put the fact they passed away in the electronic health record because you're no longer caring for them, right? You know they died and the, and the rest of the team does. So it's not an electronic health record. Um, in terms of available data sets that exist out there, there have been some in the past. And, and an example of that is something called the Social Security Death Index. But again, that's around regulation and different states have different regulation. And so some states were really good at reporting that, others weren't. But if you're trying to say, hey, we don't need all the infrastructure of a clinical trial, an example of something you have to have is did that patient pass away? Because if you don't have that, then you don't know if the drug worked, you don't know if the person lived longer. And so one of the things that just an example of what we did at Flatiron was to say, you know, how do you go out and find that data? And it was actually through public data sets like obituary data and others. And how do you stitch it all together? And then you have to validate that it's right. But since you don't have a great data source this real time, we went back and used um, some historical data sets that are a couple years old, but are high, but are, but, are, but are very clear that they're accurate. And so then we said, well, we stitched it all together and then we compared it to an old data set to be able to say, you know, you can actually use our data because we can prove you that we actually know that person passed away. So while it seems really easy, it's those kinds of things that are sort of hidden under the surface that make these things actually much more complex than people understand. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. What did you learn from your experience at Flatiron that you brought to Signal Path? Yeah, the Flatiron piece of it was a critical piece of the juncture for me. So, you know, another thing that I, I talk to clinicians a lot about who are looking if they're going to change, you know, you have to be willing to be humble, right? You're you're used to being a clinician, especially as a doctor, you sort of walk in and tell people what to do, both patients and staff. They generally sometimes, you know, might or might not listen to you, but at least that's sort of the hierarchy that exists in clinical practice. Um, whereas, you know, then you're showing up with a lot of brilliant, brilliant folks. I mean, that there was a brilliant group of individuals from all the top schools and, you know, just, uh, it was a fun place. So I learned a lot about, you know, I came in as a clinician thinking I knew what I was talking about, but had to learn a ton from engineers and product managers. I didn't even know what a product manager was when I started, right. And, you know, how they, how they lead a lot of the strategy and overall vision of what's going on. And so I learned a ton there around um, from other individuals about the roles of these things, about how do you think strategically about putting this all together. And so it was a great learning experience for me as, not as a clinician, but more broadly uh, about how to exist in the ecosystem. And then I was able to take that, marry it with my clinical background and my understanding of research um, to when I took over CEO back in 2017 of Signal Path was really about sitting down with clinicians and being able to understand and, and clinical research teams more broadly, not just clinicians at all, um, about the pain points that exist in those health systems and how to then guide the product engineering and other teams to build the solutions to meet those needs. Uh, but again, it's, it's, uh, 
uh, you know, it, it's a long, it's a long path to become an oncologist. But at the same time, I think it set me up fairly uniquely. I think there are other places where you don't need to be a clinician to be successful in health tech. I think there's some very deep, uh, deep areas of the pool where that clinical and research expertise actually becomes quite relevant. And I think that's a lot of what positioned me well to, to, to help to build signal path. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how is that the, the work of signal path impacting the health system, the general public in a way? So the signal path itself, the biggest thing that we were trying to accomplish there was how do you make it so that more health systems can participate in research and those that do can have more trials and run them better and make them more compelling for the health system? Uh, because at the end of the day, clinical research, clinical trials are the way we get new drugs to market today. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of evolution of what one looks like that, that is a lot of what we spend our time on at Verily that I'm super, I'm really excited about. But at the end of the day, it is how do you how do you drive more health systems to participate? How do you get them more trials and how do you make them more successful and more financially viable so that the senior executives of those health systems are excited to have them there? You know, everything from many of the health systems out there or even many of the small practices. I was a part of a eight doc private practice when I left Duke. And uh, we knew we were losing money on the trials that we did every day because uh, we were doing it for scientific reasons. It was an exciting, we wanted patients to have access. You know, we wanted patients to want to come to our practice because they could, we knew, because they would know they could get the best care possible. But at the end of the day, it was inefficient. It was losing money. And the staff was often not excited to be there doing it because of the pressures they felt. I can tell the story that uh, the clinical research coordinator in our practice, soon after I joined, went on mental health leave and then went back to the infusion suite because she thought it was more fun and more relaxing to give chemo to patients, right, than it was to try to be a part of the clinical research trials that we were running. And so our big thesis was first that we wanted to do that differently and better. We wanted to make it high volume, high margin, exciting to be a part of at the health systems. And then the belief was that if we could build a big enough network, that would then allow us to do the trials differently, right? Then if we are the infrastructure, if we build the data infrastructure and we build the operational workflow infrastructure, and that's a long process that takes years, then on top of that, that's how you actually do things differently. And that's why we're at Verily now. So um, so it was, it was with a long view in mind, but also a strong belief that we could build something better than anybody else to help health systems run their trials. So it's basically what you're saying, the signal path is doing a lot of uh, help increase the efficiency and operationalize a lot of the the trial. Mm -hmm. Correct. Take it away from PDS and sticky notes and everything else into the digitized version of a trial where they build their budget, the coordinators clicking off what they need to do that day without having to try to figure out what they need to do. That then flows seamlessly to finance. They know who to charge, what to in charge to insurance, what to charge to a sponsor. The leadership of the health systems knows how many trials are open because they're on the platform, how they're accruing, where there are problems. So it really is that operational workflow to take away the manual processes that a health system be able to run a trial. And help us understand how it fits with the Verily. So in that part of it was a fascinating, I did, I had, so in early 21 is when the process started to sell 
uh, to Verily. And it was not something that I had anticipated doing in any way. What happened was I was on the phone with one of the big pharma companies, one of the big sponsors in the country. And they said, hey, you know, we're invested in this decentralized clinical trial company and your network married to what they want to do would be super compelling and we could run very different trials. You should call them. And so I called them. And next thing I know, you know, they were, they were saying, hey, we're going to make an offer. And then I, other people started coming. And so it was sort of this serendipitous thing where I had no intention. And you hear these stories all the time, right? I'm sure. But um, next thing I knew, we were in all these negotiations and discussions. And the reality was that we believed that we would become the backbone, and still believe this, obviously, to become the backbone to do clinical research differently, right? That we could help to involve the sites, but involve them in a very lightweight fit-for-purpose way in the trials that should be happening in the future. And so uh, there were only a couple CTMS, signal paths called the site CTMS, there are only a couple of us out there. And so ultimately a number we're looking. And the Verily vision is very much around, you know, one of the, the main pillars of Verily, of which there are a handful, um, was around how do we look at evidence generation and clinical trials differently. And so they saw both the technology we built as well as the network we had as being a foundational element of that vision. And so uh, that's why we're required. It's been about a year and a half now, but that's that, that's what led to the acquisition was a belief that that sites need to be at the seat and clinicians and, and that the patient's clinician relationship is so core to everything that we do that they need to be at the, at the table for what evidence generation and trials of the future look like and that we, we were a good fit for that. Mm-hmm. And so how is it different now that you're part of a large organization versus when you're, you know, in a smaller scale company? The culture-wise probably is different too. Yeah, so many, so many ways. It's hard to it's hard to even start. But I, what I will say is, actually, my last call, somebody was asking me, you know, do I regret having made the transition and how's it going? And and I have absolutely no regrets. You know, um, I feel like there are a lot of point solutions is, is a bad term, but sort of last mile efforts of solving individual issues in healthcare, of which we were one, right? We were trying to solve what does it mean to run a trial at a site and how do we do that better for large networks that might have hundreds, if not thousands of trials running in any given moment. Um, we could have, and this was sort of the alternative path two years ago, a year and a half ago, would be to say, hey, we're going to go raise $100 million or $500 million or whatever that a lot of folks have been doing and try to build the next version of this ourselves. Um, we instead made the decision that we wanted to be a part of something bigger with a bigger reach and, and, a, and, and the ability to actually, you know, alphabets the parent company of Early and the things that we can do in concert with everybody. So now, you know, we have a couple billion dollars, 1,500 people, alphabet in the background. And so I think the biggest transition for me has been um, you know, I used to worry about what we were losing every month and what did that mean and how are we going to, you know, keep the lights on. And now it's the ability to break, to have the broader vision of how to tie all the different pieces together to truly do this at scale. So it's a very different experience, but um, I have no question that it was the right moment to say, okay, we've gotten this where it needs to be. And now let's see if we can leverage it as a part of something bigger. Um, and that's what's kept me here after, you know, m- many folks would leave within the first year. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I was unclear if that was going to be me or not, but so far it's been great. And, uh, and, and it's been a ton of fun. And so you're also on the board for the, for Galvani too. And how is that intertwined with, with the work that you do with the signal path? Or is that completely separate? Uh, completely set. Well, uh, it's part of the Verily, you know, it, it's intertwined with the Verily story broadly. And that one is a fascinating one. That is a bioelectronics company that's looking at how can you 
stimulate nerves to treat chronic diseases, uh, thinking of the pathways of the nerves to the organs that they impact and how... So in, in the first iteration of Galvani's device, they're actually putting um, something into the splenic nerve that makes the spleen release certain certain biotransmitter biochemicals uh, that they think can treat rheumatoid arthritis. And so, again, it is a fascinating device, but it's all around the clinical research and how do you actually get these things to market? How do you, how do you prove that they work and how do you get them to people? And so that's why I joined the board there was really the view is that they were really pushing into the clinical research space and how do you get the patients on trial and think about how to run those trials. Um, and so all these things are very interrelated. I've had a very unique view of what the trials look like today, how to make them better, but also how to reimagine them. And that's where I get really excited about, um, and, and Galvani is a great example. I mean, first in human kind of work of how can you change how, how things are done and then how can you get them to people as quick as you can. So if you advise, like, so it's a company who's thinking about running a clinical trial, what are usually the common mistakes that people make in setting up the design of the, their clinical trial? Well, I think that there, 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 there's this view that there are two types of clinical trials out there, or, or really two options. One has been the traditional trial where you say, I'm going to bring on 50 sites, you know, if it's a small early trial just to see if it's safe or not. It might be a couple of sites. And then as it gets further along and it gets to what's called phase three, which are the big sort of landmark pivotal trials to show if it works or not. You know, you you sit down in a room, you get a piece of paper and design the trial and you put it in a PDF and you call the sites and say, hey, do you want to do this trial? Do you find it exciting? Do you think you can get patients on it? And how much do you want us to pay? How much do, how much do you want us to pay us? And that's the usual process for a trial. And then more recently, there's been this view of what are called decentralized trials, right? Which is where I don't need the site. I don't need the clinician. I can do certain types of trials in the home, right? We can recruit them online and then send them the drug in the house and send them some other, and maybe they go to a CVS to get their blood drawn, but we can do it largely outside the system. Um, and, and that second version, the decentralized clinical trial, is a newer idea that's gaining some traction and it's had some, some successes and some failures. And, and our view is that things aren't binary, right? It's not either I'm going to do it a site or do it in the home or, or just rely on data by itself. It's actually trying to bring it all together to say, what is the optimal way to recruit an individual to your trial? What is the optimal way to collect the baseline data and, and the data you need? What can you get from a patient? What can you find that's already out there in the data ecosystem, whether it's social determinant data about the individual or a patient court outcome survey that they can fill out? Or in their EHR, how do we bring as much as we can together from the very different sources that are out there? But then also, how do we how do we bring in the site to do the part that they need? If they're getting a cardiac device, they still need to get that from a surgeon, right? Most likely. If they're getting their treatment for cancer, they're going to want to get that hand-in-hand -hand with their oncologist. And so our goal has really been to say, it's not it, the um, sort of binary approaches of different types of ways that you can run research shouldn't exist in the way they, they have historically. And we actually need to bring all these things together. We need to bring together the site, the data infrastructure that already exists in the world, the patient and the individual, and have them be a core participant of it. Um, and then we also need to be able to look at things like... Um, how do you uh, how do you actually get passive data sets that otherwise like you know give somebody a study watch that can tell you a lot that we might not otherwise be able to get from them? So lots of ways that we're looking at it differently and and trying to make the the paradigm the the research uh, trial fit for purpose for what we're trying to solve. As co-founder and CEO, you experience a lot of highs and lows. 
And what do you tell yourself to keep on going when things are really difficult? Yeah, it is. Not only are there highs and lows, but they can all happen in the same day or the same hour, which is something that I, uh, you know, I used to love to like go to Vegas and hang out and things. And then life got stressful as an entrepreneur. And, and the stress of like going and gambling wasn't the fun thing it once was. Uh, so it is definitely, and, and it, what kept me, what always has kept me going is, is a belief that we're doing something bigger, right? It is a belief, even, even I'm sure that is an answer that many give, but it, it was a, so it was a belief that we were doing something bigger that could have a big impact, but also that I had sort of put my reputation on the line that this is something that if health systems are using this and people are spending the time and the effort and the money to be a part of this, that I had an obligation to see it through. And so um, I, I can I can honestly say there was never a time when when it was really an option or even a thought to stop because we just you just have to keep going right and and that's where being being an entrepreneur is it's a unique situation and when that's the case and it, I think it pushes people to work really hard and get to the other side of complex problems. Last question: What are a couple things about you that many people at work don't know about you? Um. That I love the outdoors and I love hiking. You know, the thing that I've uh, uh, I referenced it in the beginning is is in between uh, high or in between college and going starting medical school, uh, I had gone to something called Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, which is a uh, sort of a, a nonprofit that brings people out in the outdoors and is very sort of uh, skills oriented, learning around mountaineering and kayaking and a whole bunch of stuff. And I got so obsessed that a third of the way through it, I called the med school and said, I'm not going and called my parents. And luckily they were, they didn't, uh, they kept talking to me afterwards. But, uh, and then I spent a year with kids in the prison system sort of hanging out in Southern Utah and trying to teach them about the outdoors and, and, and how to be independent. And I'm excited as of, I don't know, two or three months ago, I joined the board there, which uh, I never thought I would do with a whole bunch of, of amazing people like Jimmy Chin and others that are on the board there. And I guess that's my passion. I wish that I had more free time to go and, uh, you know, hang out in Patagonia or something. But um, that is uh, that is the thing that I love to do, which I don't think most people, you know, when you're, when you're walking around would, would think of. Tell me more about the youth prison program that you're involved with. Sure. So uh, at the time, what it was is a couple of states had these programs that were, they were for profit, but they would take kids who were back in defenders who had, you know, had been in the prison systems, in and out of the prison systems and in and out of trouble for a long time. And traditional means really weren't working. And they would say they would send them out to these programs. And again, like in retrospect, this was many years ago for me, whether this was the smartest move on my part to be a part of, we could figure out another day, but um, they would send it to them for us for 100 days. And this, the one that I was a part of was in Southern Utah. It was in the Henry Mountains, which is the last mapped mountain range in the lower 48. And, you know, it's minus 10 and we would have them hike all day. They couldn't eat food for a day or two after they got out there. And then the only way to get hot food is they'd have to figure out how to build a fire with their shoestring and we would uh, sleep on their clothes at night so they couldn't run. I mean, it was, it was, I don't think such things would exist anymore, but um, it was a fascinating thing for them of self-reliance and understanding what they're capable of and sort of resetting and trying to get them out of difficult environments. And there have been some studies that actually showed that a huge impact uh, on some, not all, right? But that's all you can hope for is that some, but it also had a huge impact on me. It taught me a lot about, you know, how to be dropped in a group and lead and think about things differently and, and strategically solve problems because uh, we had one incident where there was a bit of an uprising and the problem is, you know, they can't get to you out there for 10 hours and you have the four people that are there and you got to figure out how to solve it. So 
um, it was a, it was a fascinating time for me and, and my belief and my hope is that we, we helped a few people along the way too. So imagine you have with four teenagers, they can be pretty strong. And how do you yeah. handle that? I'll never, there were four staff members and there were probably 10 kids. And uh, one of them decided he wasn't going to be a part of it anymore and actually took a rock and started threatening people. And, um, you know, obviously we couldn't, I, I, I'm, I'm not the, uh, I'm not one that's going to use force to change things. I don't think that's my strength. I don't think I've ever been in a fight in my life. So, uh, it was all around, you know, talking him down and other kids trying to talk him down and the acknowledgement that, you know, it was, uh, we were out in the middle of nowhere and there was nothing positive going to come of getting angry and coming after folks. Um, so it, it prepared me well to raise children, right? Because uh, uh, there were some some high intensity situations. But I did after that one, I did quit actually, and I moved over to Outward Bound uh, in in the in the Boston area, uh, Thompson Island, because I decided that uh, if that had gone worse, it wouldn't have been good, and it probably wasn't worth quite that much. So uh, in terms of the learning experience, so I'm sure this experience has taught you a lot and helped you prepare in your leadership in running a company. Well, and that's why Knowles has been such, why I went on the board recently, because yes, it's about having people enjoy the outdoors and respect the outdoors and understand um, what it means to all of us and why it's important, but it's also all around how do you build leaders and leadership and get people out of their comfort zones. And so I think those kinds of experiences have a huge impact on on everybody. Well, thank you for sharing your story. This is really helpful and it's really fun. Um, Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I I love the conversation today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.